Welcome to One to Grow One, a show where we dig into questions about agriculture and try to understand how food production impacts us and our world. My name is Hallie Casey, and I studied and currently work in agriculture. And I'm Chris Casey, Hallie's dad. Each episode, we focus on an area of agriculture or food production to discuss. And this week, we are discussing USDA COVID-19 relief programs. Boy, that was a mouthful. It is a bit of a mouthful. I wanted to take some time to discuss some of the United States Department of Agriculture programs that have come out uh, kind of to end, kind of wrap up our last conversation in the previous episode about kind of COVID-19 and the supply chains. Because in that, we kind of alluded to how expensive is it really to have a supply chain that's so vulnerable? I really wanted to kind of talk about some numbers and look at what the federal government has had to do and tried to implement in order to make up for the fact that the supply chains were just so fragile. And last time, I made comments about how, you know, when you would talk about shorter supply lines and more localized food systems, you know, my brain went to, that sounds like my food getting more expensive. And then you came back with, well, actually, you know, when we have to deal with large supply line failures, then we have these programs that you're talking about, and it can be much more expensive in the long run. Exactly. Yeah. So. Let's talk about it. I wanted to start off by saying I am not really going to be talking about SNAP or any food assistance. There is a lot happening in terms of food assistance from the USDA. I am mostly just going to be focusing on farmer-focused programs. We're going to talk a little bit about some food bank stuff, um, but there is a lot going on with SNAP right now. So if you want more info on that, I think that's what the extra research on Patreon is going to be about. It's wild, y'all. Okay, so... Farms are eligible for PPP. For me and the listener at home, will you please define what PPP stands for? Yeah, so farms are eligible for the Paycheck Protection Program. They're also ah. mostly now eligible for EIDL, which is also called IDLE. Both of these programs uh, became available in March for all companies, generally. Uh, mostly it was focused on small businesses uh, and it was focused on economic relief. However, they were first come, first serve. And when EIDL first came out, I'm pretty sure like farmers were not eligible for it. And there was a big stink. And then Congress had to move super fast to change the statute so that farms were eligible for it. But this is just something that pretty much every small business in America is and was eligible for. Um, I think at this point, PPP has been depleted and they're looking at adding more PPP into the next federal uh, aid package. But this is something that I have not factored into when we're talking about total amounts of money, but is like a huge factor. A lot of farms did get this money. So if old McDonald had a farm, he could get EIDL? Yep. <laughs> That's a pretty funny joke, Dad. Thank you. Thank you very much. What is EIDL? EIDL is the economic something disaster loan. Economic, okay. All right. I don't know what the I stands for. Um, so we've got a yeah, pay, paycheck protection service and a, and a disaster loan. Okay. Yeah. And then the loan was, you didn't have to repay the loan. So not oh. much of a loan, more of a grant. Nice. In late May, uh, USDA's Farm Service Agency announced that they would now allow farmers with existing Farm Service Agency loans to essentially defer their payments for up to a year. And they're talking about extending that period. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
Farm service agency, this is super huge because this is where the majority of lending comes from, um, is farm service agency and farm service agency backed loans for farmers. So a big deal, uh, not specifically granted money or anything like that, but it is like a relief action. Okay. So the farm service agency loan, that's a different kind of loan than the EIDL or uh, right. and the PPP program. I don't even think that is a loan, is it? Farm service agency loan, that's like a normal loan that farmers mm-hmm. would get in a normal year. Yeah. So it's like existing loans. Like if back in January you took some money out and you borrowed it against Farm Service Agency, then you don't have to pay that back for up to a year, if not longer. So my brain goes to the same place it does when I hear things about rent deferment and other such programs where, but you still have to pay it back. Right. Eventually they yeah. will be having to pay it back. But it's it's good that they're deferring payments. That's super good. Uh, the CARES Act, which passed in April, had about $850 million for food bank costs, and at least $600 million of that had to be explicitly for food purchasing. So you had some money in there for food banks that needed administrative assistance or added labor or something like that, but $600 million was earmarked just for food purchasing for emergency food relief. Oh, very cool. Okay. So next, I want to talk about Late April, a $300 billion program that was passed by Congress called the Farm to Families Food Box Program. Okay, so we're just going program month by month at this point. I'm I'm pretty much going, yeah, like chronologically. Uh, I mean, I started off with kind of just generally... But now I'm kind of getting into month to month. Yeah. And in the in the world of, of COVID, like this is not something that would normally happen, right? We don't usually have new programs each month that handle this sort of thing. This is just a unique situation. <laughs> yeah. So this Farm to Families Food Box program was extremely unique. Uh, so I actually sat in, I think, on the first webinar, like announcing this program. Okay. Initially, the idea for this program, they called it trunk to or truck to trunk um so the idea was that you were you were getting food from farms off of the truck and then getting it directly to nonprofits providing emergency crisis relief um so in order to get this funding um you had to be mostly they were giving this money to like aggregators and distributors middlemen some larger farmers got it but i don't I I don't think that that was really their focus. Um, And you had to be working with a nonprofit already. Like you had to have a nonprofit signed up to say, if they get this money, we're going to be involved. So Uh, uh, nonprofits get this money. No. No. So it goes to, mostly it went to aggregators and distributors, like Borden got some of this money. It goes to people working with nonprofits. Yeah, yeah. So it goes to these middlemen, um, folks who were selling to grocery stores or selling to restaurants. um, And now the USDA is trying to create this program, pivoting that to emergency funding. So it's a lovely idea. Um, The focus, as as it says in the title, Farm to Family Food Box Program, was kind of mixed boxes of produce or of dairy. Okay. And when you say farm to family, that's like food going directly from farms Two middlemen, two nonprofits who then give it to families. Yeah, yeah. So the USDA was providing huge amounts of money to these middlemen and they could buy food from farmers and then donate it, donate it to nonprofits who were then 
mostly it was a lot of food banks. It was mostly food banks that were getting this assistance, which is great. Um, but the way that these contracts were selected was a little sketch, and it did get a lot of national attention. Is actually continuing to get a lot of national attention. Oh boy! Um, so. Actually, I remember when they first announced the contract list, I had uh, some, I, I knew some of the folks who had submitted for, for this contract. Uh, and a lot of people were really excited when this program was first announced because it seemed like it was something that a lot of farmers could benefit from uh, who were mixed produce, who had, you know, a lot of food that could be, you know, surplus that wasn't going to a market. Um but then when the contracts were announced, it seemed really clear that that wasn't actually the focus of the program. Um, and I was actually scrolling through and I saw something based in San Antonio and I was like, oh, that's weird. I don't know this organization. And so I emailed a couple of my friends who work in food policy in San Antonio and I was like, do you know these guys? And then about three days later, a Politico article came out like saying like, huge government contract awarded. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Okay. So how it was supposed to work is... The middlemen would get the contracts and they would, I guess, buy food from the farms to distribute to the nonprofits? Right. Okay. Um, so in like March and April, a image went viral from the San Antonio Food Bank. It's like an aerial image of car after car after car lined up in the San Antonio Food Bank parking lot waiting for food assistance. And it was kind of used as like the poster image for the food crisis uh, in early COVID when it hit the U.S. So like San Antonio was already on the national spotlight for somewhere that was like needing a lot of assistance in providing food relief. And then this program announced contracts. And one of the contracts it announced was a $39 million contract to a organization called, and this is how the title is, how, how their organization's title is spelled, C-R-E numeral 8, A-D numeral 8, which is pronounced create a date. What? Which is an event planning company in San Antonio. And they got $39 million to do emergency food assistance relief. Uh, and immediately, this got huge national coverage in the news saying, like, who is this company? Why did they get $39 million to do something that they've never done before from the federal government? Uh, a lot of questions were being raised. It was super sketchy. Yeah. Yeah. So this was not the only like weird contract that was awarded through this program. Several contracts ended up being rescinded from the federal government. This San Antonio based one did not end up being rescinded. They com like apparently completed their contract. Did they buy thirty nine million dollars <laughs> worth of food? So the San Antonio Current reported on July 13th that this organization create a date posted online that they were while their contract deadline was technically over they were continuing to operate under the initial usda contract as of july 13th however they have not been able to find any food banks who've actually received any food from create a date um, especially not the san antonio food bank uh, so there's a lot of questions being raised around this Farm to Families Food Box program. Congress is currently looking at the program and deciding whether or not they are interested in renewing it um, and, and providing more appropriations. In June, ProPublica reported that awardees had hired a lobbyist to basically improve the image of the program because there was so much weirdness around the contract um, allocation. I mean, it's it's clear, like, 
according to The Counter, um, which is a really cool publication that talks about food news, as of late July, 43.5 million boxes or so have been donated through this program since mid-May. So it's probably closer to 50 now because this was in July. This is a program that is, you know, getting food assistance to people. However, this is a $3 billion appropriation from late April. And if now all we're seeing is 50 million boxes, there's some questions there on like, where is this money actually being spent? And why? How how did how did they choose these contractors? Who? Why? Who who was in the room when when those decisions were being made, and why on earth did they make the decisions they did? Okay, hang on, hang on. So, fifty mil, fifty divided by, I mean, those are expensive food boxes. Let's just be honest. Yeah, no, I think it's very clear that all of the three billion was not going to food boxes. I mean, obviously, you still have. Um, like personnel costs and you have overhead costs. But still, like there are a lot of questions and it's extremely clear that a lot of these contracts were awarded to companies that were not able to deliver on what they were saying that they would do. Right. So a lot of questions there. A lot of weirdness. That of all of the USDA programs that we're going to be talking about today is definitely one that had the the most headlines and had the most controversy around it. It's like $60 a box if I'm getting my math right. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's a lot of weirdness. Okay. So I'm shocked, but... Yeah, no, you should be. I was shocked when I was like reading through it and I was like, there's this company that got $39 million in San Antonio and I don't know them? What? How would I not know a company worthy of $39 million for, you know, food stuff right. in just south of me? It was very strange. I wonder if they had this like so many relationships with so many farmers they thought they could handle it. Yeah, no, they're an event planning company. They plan weddings. They had no relationships with any farmers. <laughs> Maybe some agro-tourist places. <laughs> so the other program I wanted to talk about real quick is the CFAP program, which is the Corona Virus Food Assistance Program, which is confusing because it does not provide food assistance. However, it is called the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program. Okay. Probably doesn't try to feed the coronavirus either. It does not try to feed the coronavirus. Basically, this is providing financial assistance to producers of agricultural commodities who suffered, according to, this is from the USDA website, a 5% or greater price decline, or who had losses due to market supply chain disruptions due to COVID-19 and face additional significant marketing costs. So okay, basically- so this is mm-hmm. This is assistance for farmers. Yeah, it's it's just grant money. It's just here is some money. Take it. It's yours. It doesn't really apply to folks like corn, wheat, um, soybeans, where those markets were not super disrupted. Um, you didn't have a huge price decline uh, and you you were still able to market it in the traditional ways. Got it. However, this program is first come, first serve. And now we like we talked about with EIDL and PPP, that's not unusual. However... Um, because there's so much variety in like the types of farms that are eligible for this program, um, having first come first serve really disadvantages certain farmers. Um, because basically, if you have a simpler production system, like if you have one big broccoli farm, um, then it's going to be much easier to apply. It's going to take much less time. Um, and so you can just boom, apply and you're done. Um, whereas if you had like a diversified system where you were growing 20 different crops, then that's going to be much more time intensive in order to submit that application. 
The counter reported that more than $6 billion has already been paid out to more than 440,000 producers, including $394 million just to hog producers, um, which, as we talked about in the last episode, the hog production system was totally devastated. So it's clear that, you know, farmers are getting this money, but... So real quick, if yeah, you say it's easier for someone with one crop to just sign up and get this... As opposed to someone with a diversified system, is that just because they have to like analyze which thing and which market lost money? Yeah. So with the coronavirus food assistance program, only specific types of commodities are eligible. I see. um, And they're basically eligible on different scales. So like if you're growing broccoli, broccoli lost this much money nationally. So we're taking the average of that and however much broccoli you grew this is how much money you're eligible for. Um, And so if you're doing 20 different crops, then you have to go through and figure out, okay, what is the rate for strawberries? What is the rate for broccoli? What is the rate for potatoes? What is the rate for kohlrabi? Go all the way through. Um, And it's just a much longer application because you're applying basically for each specific crop, not as a a, a farm. You're applying as a crop. Um, Yeah. Also, this program does not account for price premiums. So, like, if you were growing normal broccoli, then you get this price. And if you were growing organic broccoli, then you were also getting the exact same price. So, it's not accounting for, like, organic. It's not accounting for local. It's not accounting for any of those price premiums. Um, And also, I don't know any farmers that are eligible for this. No direct-to-consumer, you know, local farmers who are focused on small markets are eligible for this. So it's really focused on, you know, large farms, mostly that are, you know, monocropping, mostly that are just selling directly into a commodity market and aren't selling into a localized supply chain. That's disheartening. Yeah. So not to say that all farmers don't need food assistance at this moment, because it's clear everyone is hurting during the coronavirus. Right. But... It's also really helpful to understand how these relief programs are built and understanding who it is prioritizing. Yeah, that is important. And prioritizing, you know, mostly large producers, I find disheartening. And one thing I like to do when I get disheartened is I take a break. Let's go. Welcome to the break, everybody. Dad, did you know... About our Discord and Facebook groups? I did. In fact, I just saw you talking about your plant woes on Discord. And I'm like, wait, she's the plant person. Doesn't she know everything (laughs) about this? And then I'm like, no, learning in public is important. Yeah, it is. And also, this is the saddest I've ever felt about a plant. I've never had a plant die so quickly. I brought it home. And then like two weeks later, it's like, okay, I'm done. It still has like three leaves, but we'll see how it goes. Maybe it just misses its mom. Yeah, maybe so. You can learn about all of my plant woes as well as talk about your own plant woes and or talk about anything we talk about on the show and so much more at com slash group or at com slash discord. You can also search on Facebook for the One to Grow On Pod Friends and you can find us that way. So thank you so much to all of our patrons, especially our Starfruit patrons, Vikram, Mama Casey, Lindsay, Patrick and Cheyenne. And thank you so much to Megan, who has upgraded her pledge over on our Patreon as well. Thank you, Megan. Shall we get back to the episode? Back to the episode. 
So we've talked through all of everything so far um, with the programs that we've talked about. That's about $14.2 billion just on food and agriculture, not counting PPP, EIDL, FSA grants, anything like that. And we're looking at millions, if not billions more in the next upcoming aid package from Congress. Okay. So it's a lot of money so far throughout the coronavirus that has been put towards this. However, the National Sustainable Agricultural Coalition estimates a loss of about $1.3 billion just from local and regional sales. And according to the Congressional Research Service, COVID-19-related losses for agriculture approached $40 billion as of May. My as gosh. of May. So that does not even account for June, July, and August so far. We are not done with this year, folks. So we have this number of how much the coronavirus pandemic has cost so far. And what I really wanted to find was any information on how much it could cost to implement resiliency within a food supply or within a food within a supply chain, like a food supply chain. But I couldn't really find any of that info. If anybody knows where I can find it, please send it my way. But I wasn't able to locate it. So maybe that science hasn't yet been done or that analysis. But what I was able to find um, was an article from Food Logistics. Food Logistics is a online website. And I think they also have a periodical that talks about building resilient supply chains and that talks about really building disaster prevention into food supply. Um, And they specifically were talking about this case study from Dow Chemical. Now, Dow Chemical is not a food business and it wasn't implementing these resiliency principles in order to make sure that, you know, we always would have access to hazardous biochemicals or whatever Dow Chemical was trying to transport that day. But they really did want to build a system that was unbreakable because these chemicals that they were transporting, all these materials, were so hazardous. So they couldn't really have an accident. They did not want to have that happen. So they were really trying to find a system that was unbreakable. And Food Logistics talked about that as a case study because we don't really have a case study of these principles being implemented at a large scale for food. Um, There are some regional projects, there are some statewide projects, there are a good number of local projects, but we haven't seen any national companies, any global companies or governments um, taking these principles to heart and really doing it at a large scale for food. So I was looking at this case study um, and trying to learn What does this look like at a large scale, especially like keeping in mind how expensive this pandemic was? How expensive was it for Dow Chemical to implement all of these these resiliency principles? And were there anything in specific they said that Dow Chemical found that maybe might apply to the food supply chain? Yeah. So Dow Chemical is a very big chemical shipper. It's the largest bulk chemical shipper in North America by truck and by rail, and has also been ranked as the seventh largest U.S. exporter. So it's a very big company. Um, So some of what they did was really basic things like shipping container design, supply chain visibility, um, which I didn't talk about in the last 
episode, but is really related to building good, strong supply chains is having visibility at every stage. So it's clear um, where that food is moving, how it's moving, um, and who's being impacted, and you know what are the risks at each stage. Um, greater collaboration with private and public sector partners, and supply chain redesign. So those last three supply chain visibility, greater collaboration with private and public, and supply chain redesign are something that can apply to every supply chain, um, including food. And they interviewed Dana Mathis, who's the Global Supply Chain Director of Logistics and Operations for Dow Chemical. Um, And they found that when you have to get creative and find ways to change the design of a supply chain, then you can find different routes um, or different suppliers that reduce total freight and therefore reduces cost. So they're finding ways, they're focusing on what is the safest way? How do we make our system unbreakable? But they're also finding that as they're rethinking these steps, they're also finding ways to save money. They had one specific example where like Dow Chemical reduced the transportation of a specific material by like two thirds, meaning that they just were able to source it more locally. Um, and that resulted in millions of dollars saved in annual operating costs for the company. So I think what we really found here in this case study is that when you're looking for different goals, where the goals is not just economies of scale, but it's instead, how do we make this supply system safe for our employees, safe for the environment? How do we make sure it's unbreakable? Then you're able to become more creative and find different ways um, to make ends meet as a company and to to really save those costs in different ways. Seeds of wisdom from Hallie Casey. I just found it extremely interesting. If anybody knows of any case studies like this in food, I would love to read them. Well, it looks like you got a couple of questions as well. Yes, I had a couple of questions. We put out a call on social media because I think that this is going to be wrapping up our COVID talk on the actual show. If something very intense and newsworthy happens, then maybe we can do some more analysis of it. But for the most part, I think this is going to be wrapping up our COVID talk. So I put out a call um, to see if we got any other questions that we missed. We got one from Amanda. Uh, What are the best ways to support my local restaurants apart from ordering directly? This is something that I thought about a lot uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And what I found was just asking them, hey, how can I help? Um, Really helps restaurants understand that they have customers that are batting for them. Um, And so like one of the changes I saw when I asked one of my local restaurants about that is they like opened up a tip jar. So like if I had five extra bucks, I was able to put it into the tip jar and that could either go to covering rent or to paying employees or anything like that. Um, So really, I think it's different everywhere. And I know that's not a quick and easy answer, but talking to your local restaurants, I think is is a really good way to do that. I've seen a couple also say, hey, Buy some gift cards from us. Yeah, yeah. I did buy a lot of gift cards yeah. back in like March, April. And so I will be able to spend those in future. But that way they had like liquid capital to be able to cover rent for the month. All right. Carrie asks, is there a way to get local produce without having to go to the farmer's market and having to see all those people? Yes, there are several ways you can do this. Um, In your area, you might be able to find some local farm CSAs, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture, 
which is basically where you get a big box of veggies um, and it's just mixed veggies, whatever's on the farm. So you're not ordering it piece by piece, um, but you just get a share of whatever is in season. Usually if you just search like your area CSAs, then you can find an article um, or if there are any farm advocacy organizations or food access organizations in your area, then you can you might be able to ask them for a list um, or if they know of anyone who's currently selling CSA shares. You can also, I know here in Texas, we have several local food hubs that are selling local produce. So we have Farmhouse Delivery is the big one in Austin, and they have sites throughout Texas. And Imperfect Produce also purchases from local Texas farmers. So if you want something that's more shop-like, where you're purchasing by item by item, um, then some of those online food hubs are a really good way to go. And a lot of large metro areas have those now. You just have to do a little bit of research. Okay, Vikram asks, why can't I stop eating ice cream during COVID? I think I can take this one. Ice cream is medicinal and is necessary <laughs> and otherwise does not count. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. I've got a whole thing of Cherry Garcia Ben & Jerry's uh, in oh, my freezer man. right now, which is the objectively best ice cream ever invented. Cherry Garcia is so good. I think I had it for the first time just even a couple months ago, and I just sort of really tried to taste it and, and sit in the flavor, and it was so good. I also like their milk and cookies. Which, you know, Ben and Jerry's has some great stuff. Yeah, it's true. All right. Well, I think that wraps up our COVID talk for now. And we will see you guys in two weeks. Adios. Thanks for listening to this episode of One to Grow On. This show is made by me, Hallie Casey, and Chris Casey. Our music is Something Elated by Broke for Free. If you'd like to connect with us, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at One to Grow On Pod. Or join our Discord and Facebook communities and leave us your thoughts on this episode. You can find all of our episodes and transcripts as well as information about the team and the show on our website, onetogrowonpod.com. Help us take root and grow organically by recommending the show to your friends or consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash onetogrowonpod. There, you can get access to audio extras, fascinating follow-ups, exclusive bonus content, and boxes of our favorite goodies. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Sharing is the best way to help us reach more ears. Be sure to see what's sprouting in two weeks. But until then, keep on growing. <laughs>